We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. I think I speak for all of us on the pod when I say, yes! 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 God, we needed that. Whew. And I think it's pretty indisputable. I don't know how you could dispute it, which makes it indisputable that Arsenal is, without any question, the team of the decade. We are clearly, and without question, the team of the decade. And I want to say very, very happy new year to all of you listening to everyone in the Arsenal diaspora because it is a happy day. It is a day that I think a lot of us have been hoping for. A, a great performance, a fantastic result, signs that things are turning around and reason for happiness. If maybe we got the the life-testing sadness after Chelsea, the, the reminder that we can still care about Arsenal, we got the true euphoria against United. Couldn't have happened against a better side. And I, uh, for one, am thrilled. So uh, let me introduce everyone, then I'll do a little bit of quick housekeeping. So first, Paul's on Twitter at Pause in My Pants. Hello, Paz. Woohoo! Clive's on Twitter at Clive EFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Tim's on Twitter at Stoberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. So here's what we got. We got a couple of things to just let you know about real quick. By the way, I did the live commentary for this game on Hot Mike, and I had a lot of fun with that. And everyone who joined me, thank you so much for that. I'm going to try to get a copy of that from them and see if we can make it available Um 
because there were some pretty hilarious moments in there, as you can probably imagine. For patrons, tomorrow we will have a rewatch with me and Clive, first half of the game against United. Then Clive's transfer pods will start on Monday. You will hear Clive singing later this pod, so don't possibly skip past the break for that. Uh, and all good things, lots of good things happening. Here's another thing I want to say. Obviously, we have a partnership with The Athletic that uh, means a lot to us because we're going to be having uh, people on the podcast all January long to keep us up to date on the latest transfer scoops. Thanks to them. We've got some uh, journalists lined up who are really, really plugged in, if you know what I mean. So we'll have them on throughout the month. And uh, you can sign up at theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision. Get half off a year and a free month. So you could use January as your free month. Like the reason I recommend that is all the transfer news. Boom, free month. If you don't want it after that, totally get it. But here's what I'm going to say. We will continue our partnership with The Athletic and we will continue to put out Patreon pods and hope that you will sign up. As a thank you for that, for being so supportive with The Athletic and being so supportive on Patreon, we're going to disable advertising on this podcast going forward. So none of the automated ads, none of the ad breaks. Um, We will talk about The Athletic and ask you to sign up there and we will tell you about Patreon, but we are going to eliminate uh, advertising on the podcast. I think at this point, it is fair to say that your response to supporting us on Patreon and, and through The Athletic has been wonderful. It's allowed us to produce a podcast we're really proud of, to put out a lot of content that we are really excited about and create a community that we love. So hopefully just that little New Year's gift from us to you, I mean, it's not much, but hopefully it'll make the pod a more enjoyable experience. So for 2020, we start the decade out by saying goodbye to our programmatic advertising on this podcast, podcast, and that is in large part thanks to you. So thank you so much. So what a great occasion and We could not have asked for anything better. I I think it is the quintessential performance and result combo that we were hoping for. And it's just amazing when you think that Arteta took over at the busiest time of the year with almost no time to train, with so many injuries, and to be able to see a change so quickly and see that change not just translate in performances, but then translate into a result like this. He deserves so much credit. And while we don't want to get over our ski tips, I think it is fair to say he is the greatest coach in world football right now. And I am already scared of losing him to Barcelona. But having said that, Tim, I'll start with you. And, Mm. you know, I mean, I, I think this is what we've been waiting for, the electricity of this kind of event and this kind of moment. Um, and, and so obviously we didn't get the results we wanted in his first two games and we get it here, but just in terms of being at the ground and being at the stadium from start to finish throughout the match and then the result at the end, give me the last time it felt like this at the Emirates for you with everybody feeling united and euphoric. And I realize big results can lift the fan base, but, but was this different? Could you feel a palpable difference in the energy around this game and the performance? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, maybe the the Spurs game last year, but I'm not sure that that quite had the same, like, if, you know, if we're talking about what I think we're going to go into, like belief in the coach, I, I think it generated a bit of belief in Emery, but not like absolutely total. So, I mean, I, I guess maybe the, the Welbeck um goal against Leicester um mm. the the thing and that, that the ended thing, great by the way nothing yeah, nothing yeah. bad happened after that <laughs> yeah exactly what what a great portent that could be um I, th- I think the thing is what so what really struck me I don't think I said this on the last podcast was that there was a standing ovation for the team after the Chelsea game which um which I thought was pretty amazing because everyone says what a horrible toxic place the Emirates is and um and don't get me wrong like it, it can be a little bit a little bit grumpy sometimes I think toxic is massively overstating it but it can be a bit grumpy but 
what happened on Sunday after the final whistle was like all the players kind of slumped and, you know, everyone's really disappointed because it was a sickening way to lose. And then when everyone saw the players like, you know, sink down onto their haunches, there, there was just like a standing ovation. And, um, and, and that was that, that really, really, that really stuck with me. And that made me really happy because I just thought like everyone in here has seen that this is different. Like, don't get me wrong. We've, we've arsenal this right up. We would, we were one nil up on 83 minutes and we've lost and we've lost because like one of our defenders has had like a massive brain fade and our goalkeepers punched thin air. But everyone could, and and look, I'm sure that like we'll spend a lot of this t- podcast talking about the tactical switches that Arteta's made and the clever things he's done with players and closing distances and stuff like that. But I, I think the best way to start this podcast is to talk about how it feels different. It just feels different, and you can't you can't kid that. And I don't, I just don't think we ever quite had that with Emery. There was, I think, there was like. There was varying levels of, of kind of faith. And yeah, maybe after like the Tottenham game or maybe even after we beat Chelsea last January, there was a kind of, OK, this this could work. But I th- people can just see. And, it, and it's not because like when you're inside a football stadium, the vast majority of people aren't standing there stroking their chins and going, hmm, I see Ainsley Maitland-Niles is playing as an inverted fullback today. <laughs> like that that's not what happens, right? Every, everyone's going shit this is like they know they look like they know what they're doing and <clears throat> it's not just like i think you were right to say it's reductive to call it effort because i don't think there was ever a lack of effort even in like the final embers of emery's reign there wasn't a lack of effort but it's the it's the kind of energy is a better word there's mm. just that there's an energy around this team and the fans have responded to it straight away straight away they can see that something different is happening and i think i spoke about you know on the way to everton you know when um the arteta appointment he'd been unveiled and done his press conference and everything and just on the train to the game there was a real buzz and I think it's just because what he said from the very first minute just really got everyone on side. They were like, okay, this sounds interesting. Let's hope the players respond to it. And and I just think from the second he like kicked those doors down and walked into that press conference, his messaging has been great. The tone of that messaging has been great. He's talking about energy. He's talking about getting the fans back on side. He's talking about connection. Um, and and things like that. And, you know, he's not talking tactics at the moment. He's doing tactical stuff, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about getting the connection back and getting the fans back on side. And he's talking, you know, he said something like, I saw the fans smiling again. And, and you know, that, that like he's, he's talking to us, I think, on like a fantastic level because he's not sitting there going, I'm really smart. I'm playing um, inverted fullbacks and I'm closing the distances between the teams. That, that, that's what he's doing. And that's what he's done to get the players to buy in. But when he's talking to us, he's saying, I want enthusiasm. I want energy i want connection he keeps using the phrase non-negotiable when he talks about the effort and the intensity he wants and he knows that that's the sort of thing that fans want to hear and um i I listened to his his interview on the big screen um before the game which i don't usually do um not usually they're quite early enough to see it but the interviewer said to him oh is is the message 
to keep the same intensity um, and effort as the Chelsea game. And he just said, that's the message for every game. That's non-negotiable. If you want mm-hmm. to play, you've got to do that. And, he, and you know, he's, I think he's being like clever because he knows that that's what fans want to hear and that's what they want to see. And, you know, with the players, he can talk about tactics and you go here and you stand here. And, you know, when we get the ball at Bamiyang, you swap with Lacazette and, like... He, he can give them the technical aspects, but to us, he's preaching the kind of, you know, for what, you know, for want of a better phrase, he's kind of saying, we're going to get stuck in and we're going to get you on board and we want to be together um, for this. And he's going onto the pitch afterwards and he's kind of, you know, saluting the fans and being with the players and things like that. And, and, you know, this is all new and exciting and don't get me wrong in like six months to a year, we could just be sitting here saying like, Oh, I wish he wouldn't go on the fucking pitch all the time. And, you know, cause, cause anything that's Phil new Brown style. Like, yeah. 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 Like anything that's new is usually by definition quite exciting. And, and sometimes those things start to wear you down. But, but I, I just think he, from the second, like it's clear he's been thinking about this for a long time about what he's going to do, what he's going to say, how he's going to do it. And, you know, that basically he's he's talking up the intangibles. I, I think he's talking to the players about tangibles and that's how he's getting them on board. And he's talking to us about intangibles and the speed with which the fans have reacted to this and believe in this. Like you can't fake that fans, you know, whether they be tactical sophisticates or not you can see when there's a plan that the players are Mm -hmm. buying and when there isn't and that's why without putting too much of a dampener on it that is why it remains fucking unbelievable to me that Raul Sanyehi sat there watching this team under Emery for two months when you know it's like it's toast it's over and the fans could see that and now they can see that something's different is happening and it might not be a completely smooth road. We, we might not do this every week. There might be frustrations yet. There might be weeks where they're all too knackered. There might be weeks where all their hamstrings go bang. But really, really quickly, the messaging from Arteta to us has been, for me, perfect. Mm. And we can, only, we can only speculate on what the messaging to the players is like. But, I mean, they're showing you. And if we're talking about David Luiz and Socrates afterwards, they're telling you as well that, um, you know, they're, they're bought in, they're on board. And, um, you know, and look, players, they want to work hard. Like players don't want to be lazy. They don't want to stand with their hands on their hips. They don't want to watch teams counterattack on them. You know, I, I don't think this has been about laziness. This has just been about direction and energy. And, and he's just brought straight away a total new energy to the club and everyone could see it even when we got one point out of six in his first two games and and Arsenal fans who can like every other set of fans be quite alarmist and reactionary you know you've seen the mood after the Chelsea game people have said that that's a bad way to lose a game but people have said no but there was something there there was a performance there and I can get on board with that exactly Tim I I get the sense that you're enthused (laughs) Yes, <laughs> I can hear it in your voice, man. You know, you, you bring up, you know, how Raul stuck with Emery. And the one thing I'll say is anyone who's worked in a company knows that there's always that guy or that gal who gets promoted and keeps their job and is successful purely because they know how to make their bosses like them. And I'm convinced yep. that Emery is great at making his bosses like him more than he is great at coaching football. But like, you know, and it's and it's little things already. We have those quotes like under Arsene Wenger, there'd always be that that quote, you know, that was just 
everybody was quoting it or throwing it around. I think the one I loved from the post-match press conference from Arteta was, I like it when they suffer together. You know, I, mm. I loved hearing him say that. And, you know, even that first thing, what, what do you say? Ball, opponent, teammate, distance. You see it. And here's a wild thing. Three games, two bad results. The plan was the same in all three games. How do you get a team to get better? You keep having them do the same thing, trusting that if they do it, the results will come. And the plan against United, Chelsea, and and Bournemouth, by and large, was the same. The spacing was the same. The -the off-the-ball plan, it made sense. Clive, I don't think we're, we're 13 minutes and 59, 14 minutes, there you go, seconds into the podcast, and, uh... We, we got to mention Pepe. It, it is a talking point that has to be mentioned, and there are more interesting things to talk about in this game, and there are lots of players who deserve to be flagged up and called out for their improvement and their performance. I don't think he was necessarily the man of the match, although I think he is the man around which the match turned. Um, I mean, he should have had an assist. He had a goal. He could have had a second goal, a little unlucky to hit the post. Maybe he should have taken it first time. There was another situation where Aubameyang looks up and tries to give it to his pal Lacazette, who can't bring it down, um, but if he looks up, God, Pepe's in acres of space on the wing. He completed every single pass he attempted. He, of course, in his time on the pitch, attempted more take-ons and succeeded in more take-ons than anyone else. He scores the goal. There's a great quote from an article that I'll let Paul reference because I don't want to steal his thunder, uh, talking about him being a world-class finisher. But in this Pepe performance, do you see potentially a turning point, both in terms of a manager believing in what he can give him and in terms of the quality we need to make a to make the kind of difference we've been un- unable to make in previous games. Yeah, this may this podcast may develop into a positivity echo chamber, but you can't help but feel this way. I, I mean, think shouldn't it? Pe- yeah. <laughs> Maybe I, I'll I, save I just think. a little bit of a Debbie Downer for the Colossi Natch section of the pod, but otherwise, you know, just go crazy. No, I, I think you'll get beat up then if you mention anything bad about him because he, he was he was fantastic as well. So um, I Amen, think um, was he? he was absolutely fantastic. And yep. Okay, and actually, okay, okay. Move on, Pepe. Stay, I, stay focused. What I, what I learned, for someone who's criticised him, what I learned that he actually put his hand up to play when he shouldn't be playing and played his heart out and gave us a bit of time that Saka could not give us because he was ill. Clive, So Pepe, it goes to please. show you. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm going to talk about Pepe briefly, <laughs> okay. but I'm going to probably sway off that topic because okay. he he shows such skill that if he can find more fitness and strength, I really do wonder how far he could go because some of the things that he does on the ball are just ridiculous. You know, how he rolls nutmegs through. He manages to make people freeze and stand still. And it was quite interesting the moment he came off. Luke Shaw seemed to be running downhill into our half all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Until then, we hadn't seen him at all because he was frozen to the spot. He dared move. Pepe just walking around him. But his threat is such that people stand still and stand off of him. Because footballers know footballers. They know when somebody has got that ball under complete mastery. And they respect them. And it's really interesting how he controls the side by just where he stands. I think that's really a unique thing to do. I, I, I do think his talent from a dribbling and ball protection and ball manipulation point of view is really, really high. It's quite interesting we spent 70 million quid on somebody just not the finished article, not even close, because physically he's not there yet, and that's four or five months into his first season. The real Pepe is going to be next season. And much like many players on this game, I felt... Um, I just haven't seen... There's some players who I've never seen their teeth before. 
Do you know what I mean? I've never seen so many smiling faces. I've just never seen so- them. Socrates, the fun is back, Socrates. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, some of the things that uh, I'm sure you're going through, so I don't want to take your, take your breath away with Urzel, for example, but some of the things that he was doing and his, some of the expressions he was giving off, and I'm thinking, who is this guy? I mean, literally, we've seen him since 2013, 2014, and I saw something I've never seen before. And with Pepe, you feel like there's something flickering there, a personality that's flickering there, but we haven't seen it. And I thought about podcast today, and I, I, I don't normally read too much. I read Tim's article, so I, I, I don't normally read too much or watch too many videos, but I just felt I had to, and I watched everything today, right? And so people have really assessed this game tactically quite well, and I, I thought to myself, so, so what's happened? What is actually happening here? And for me, this is a massive, massive leadership textbook start. I, I just cannot get over how this guy has inspired everybody. To come into an organization, an organization like Arsenal, which I felt I wasn't sure what type of manager we would get. I didn't think we were very attractive. He's seen what's attractive about us. He's reminded us what's attractive about us. He's reminded us of our size. He's reminded the players of why they should be privileged to play for Arsenal. He's reminded them that they are subservient to us, the fans that are watching. Maybe subservient is too strong a word, but there's a connection and responsibility for the players to get the fans on side by how the players are, how they act. And what that's really doing is forcing the players to self-develop. And that's genius. Genius leadership. Don't sulk. Think about how you behave. Because you transmit this back to the fan base. So I, mean, I do a little bit of leadership myself. And I think that, that is leadership genius. And another thing what he's done very smartly. I know we, we all know about the tactics now. We all know what he's doing with, with Shaka and Maitland-Niles and pushing up the left back high and pushing the Bamiyang in and squeezing the spaces. We caught a lot of this during the dark days, right? So, But to see him fix that problem and fix it this way and then repeat it in, this, in, in two games is stunning, right? It's absolutely stunning. But what he's really done is he's made the players feel safe on the pitch. And whatever you say, these are young men at the highest point of elite football under pressure. But by giving them these roles, when a leader makes you feel safe because he's reduced your responsibilities but actually made you better while doing it, that is something you buy into. And that is why I think the pressure's lifted. That's why I think players feel more able to express themselves because they know the zones, they know the roles, they know the roles and responsibilities. They know everything that they're meant to do as a primary action. And I think, again, all of us in our working lives, if we feel safe, if we feel comfortable, if we feel like we have a real role and a real value, we want to do it better. We want we want this feeling to continue. And I think that's why I'm seeing teeth. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. I have to look deeper. It's more than just moving Shaka to the left back in a sort of a temporary role. But we've seen this player for years. I've never seen him like this. I've never seen his face look like this. So that means he's happy in what he's doing. And I think that is, you know, if it's if it's possible to extend the manager's contract after two, three games, we should be thinking about it. I mean, it's, uh, that is, this is genius stuff. And I'm starting to wonder 
what we've got on our hands here. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're going to have to hold How on. How much Barcelona. value has he added to each player's? Well, uh, hang on, because I, I, I want to come to that because I actually have a, an interesting sort of question associated with that. But Paul, I, I want to stay on Pepe just for a minute because I think, look, we've analyzed so many players to death, but Pepe isn't a player who's gotten a lot of chances, and he's one that we spent a lot of money on. And I think a lot of people had sort of just decided to accept this idea. Well, three coaches didn't want to use him and he doesn't work hard on the training ground. And Clive has certainly made the point that he hasn't been part of the group and that is an issue. But like he dominated the first half of that game in the final third. And I think one of the things that's really changed, I keep looking for statistics that are different under Emery so far versus, uh, pardon me, under Arteta that were different versus Emery. And I think the deep completions that we make versus the deep completions we allow, we were worst in the league, I think, or near worst in terms of allowing deep completions. I think United completed eight passes in the penalty box against us, which is not a ton. I think we completed 15 in the penalty box against them. We're getting the ball into those hurtful areas more. And I thought Pepe was a big part of that in this game. And the way he puts defenders on skates and just scares them out of position is exactly what we we're kind of hoping for. And I think there's a lot more to come from him because there were a lot of times where he was free on the wing and just wasn't found. Um, do you want to quickly reference the the yeah. the article that you talked about and tell everyone about it and the, the quote about Pepe there and we can maybe transition into uh, just a little more on your thoughts on this performance from him? Yeah, there's a, an article on ESPN um, about Jared Lopez, who's the majority owner of Lille. And I'd heard this, I think we've all heard this quote before, but I came back to it with fresh eyes after this performance. <clears throat> and obviously, he's the guy who bought and then sold Pepe. Um, so, you know, he didn't have too much skin in the game at this point. Obviously, he wants to maintain his reputation. But who's G Gerard Lopez? Um, he's a Luxembourg guy who got recruited in NCAA basketball and found out that being the tallest guy in Luxembourg didn't make you the tallest guy in NCAA basketball. <laughs> fair, now, fair enough. <laughs> why is that important? Because he, he, uh, he has, you know, he's a sports guy. Uh, he made his money in artificial intelligence, uh, expert systems. And what's he done at Lille? He's married analytics and artificial intelligence because there's just too much to churn because he wants to go from looking at individual stats for players to interactions and dependencies between groups of players. So that when they go and do a search for, there's the famous story of uh, uh, Tat deciding to do a just like N'Golo Kante search and it came up with Lucas Torreira. Hmm. Well, what he's looking to do is far more advanced in that he wants to do that search based on who the players you already have are and what the likely interactions are. So that's where he's coming from. Um, it, so he's not a guy given emotional reactions to players. His, here's his take on Pepe. I think Pepe is a winger who is a world-class finisher, right? Now, there's some other stuff, but I'd almost say stop at that point. If that guy says Pepe is a world-class finisher, he's a world-class finisher. Think of those two free kicks against Vittoria, which were basically the same free kick twice over. Then think of the three shots towards a rat goal in terms of this game. One's a goal. One hits the post from distance because he knows it's the only way to get it past De Gea. He's an inch off. And one is that cross in for the free kick from the corner uh, that leads to the goal, that whipped cross that just takes all the defenders out of it. The guy with just a little bit of confidence is absolutely world-class whipping that ball. So 
that's that's a huge part of it. He has a few other quote uh, lines in it that I think are important. He says, uh, "I think Pepe is a winger who's also world class finisher." He says, "This guy." Uh, who played goalkeeper until he was 13, he understands them like few others. This is why uh, I kind of reviewed my thoughts on that shot against De Gea. That's why his finishes, even from long range, are rarely blasted and always placed. I say this because it's one of the two factors that I think have showed him a bit, slowed him a bit, sorry. We played him in a 4-3-3 in a very specific position he was wide with freedom to come inside and a full back behind him who always covered for him now there's obviously going to be a progression at arsenal because we're going to be a much more possession-based team than Lille, who by the way came second in the league uh just behind psg and beat psg in one of their two encounters in that uh, season so this is a guy who knows exactly what he's talking about and he's cold blooded and he's all about al- analytics and recruitment. So he knows his horse meat. Um, so I just, you know, we, we've been very worried about Pepe over the last couple of months. What did we really get for 72 million? Now maybe 72 million is a little high, but if he's worth 62 million and, and lives up to that and progresses and then Arteta gets his extra pound of flesh out of him. So in this game, you kind of talked about the other things he did. Um, he had four key passes, but then he had a couple of tackles. He had an interception. He had a block. He did this. He did that. You you actually see him doing on the right-hand side what Aubameyang was doing for uh, Kolasinac on the left-hand side. So he's Arteta has brilliantly by kind of progressing him into it while telling him, you play when you when you produce the goods. He's learned from Pep uh, that ruthlessness that uh, Arteta talked about uh, Pep telling him he needed to, to show. But it's a clever ruthlessness. It's not a stupid ruthlessness. It's not what Emery did to Ramsey and then to Ozil, where you're, you're blown off your foot with a shotgun. Um, he's seen Pep work with Mane, Sterling, uh, even Aguero, for God's sake, was out of Pep's plans before brought back into his plans. What mm. he did with Mares, etc. So he's Arteta is his own very intelligent animal, um, and I think very very early days. The problem with these podcasts is pretty easy to come back a few mo- few months later and say, "Ha ha ha! Look at the dumb shit you said. We've only got." You know, one and a half, kind of two, two, three full games where you're really getting to see Arteta in play, and 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 so we're making our judgments at this point. But I think we should be, to quote uh, uh, Josh Cranky, very very excited about yeah. what Pepe is going to do for us. Yeah, and I mean, look, you have to balance what you expect on the training pitch and in the dressing room against what you get on the pitch on match day. And I don't think we've seen anything from Pepe on any match day in recent memory where you wouldn't say this guy needs to be in the team. And for Arteta to decide that this was a game where he could trust him, I think was a big statement. And and look, he, he flagged a lot in the second half. I thought on the hour mark, it was clear he did need to probably come off. And I thought Nelson was a, a great introduction to add some energy and running. Now, as the game stretched a bit, we probably missed Pepe's sort of final intervention there because I thought Nelson had some chances that maybe he didn't do the most with, but he did the work he had to do. And I think to Arteta's point, you know, we talked about them running a lot, but 
he doesn't need them to run 80 yards. He doesn't need them to run up and down the pitch. If the spacing is good, you're running in small spaces. And and players are doing that and covering for one another. You know, I also related Pep uh, Pepe to uh, Alexis once on the pod, talking about sort of the type of player. I don't think Alexis was completing 26 to 26 passes in most games. This is not a guy who gives possession away cheaply. Paul, you want to have a final final comment on Pepe before we move on? Or at least you said you wanted to? Paul? Yeah, sorry. So, yeah, no, that's um, fine. Uh, if you don't yeah, have your 10, 10 minutes per question, then what are we even doing here? Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Um, so we took Pepe off at 60 minutes. Why? Uh, partly because of Pepe, I'm sure, but mostly because of Maitland-Niles. That guy was absolutely shagged by 90 minutes and needed the cover from Nelson. And I think, I think that point. was a yep. big... Yeah. I mean, you can see him. He he's just ground down. He is shattered. They all they um, are. I mean, even Obamian, yeah. who is the most fit guy I think I've ever yep. seen in my life, was limping Incredible. around the pitch towards the end. And and I love the, the we'll get to the Louise post match interview and the extent to which he took all the knives and stuck them into every area of Emery's back. But basically said, We're not physically there yet. We're just not there yet. And uh but we're you know, but we're we're trying and we're committed and we we're fighting. So you know, good for him. But yeah, um, yeah but I, I'm not letting go of it yet. I have a couple of things to say. Jesus. So, <laughs> your, yeah, your point on uh, Arteta saying that he'd like to see them suffer. Um, the the difference between him and Emery is you got to hear him say it right because there's so much in how he says it. He's a twinkle in his eye. He's a smile. It's saying far more than that. What it's saying to those players is. Suffering is good. Suffering is when you're winning. You know, you guys suffered 80 minutes against Chelsea and lost. You suffered 90 minutes against United and you won. And that's the fucking difference. And somebody like Arteta can communicate that with a wit and wisdom. He's the fastest mind in the room. He's the guy with the best plan. He's been in the war room for three and a half years. When he sits down to talk to these guys about the upcoming Chelsea game, he knows shit about Chelsea that they haven't even thought about because they've been stuck in a room with Emery for a year and a half talking about Chelsea. He knows stuff about United. He knows why they do it, how they do it, how to unpick them, what they're going to do to him. And everybody listens to him because he's the smartest guy. He's the quickest guy. He doesn't just have a plan. He has the best fucking plan. And he knows forensically everything he's up against here. And the the last thing I'd like to say is... Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I've got to say this last Please do. Thing. I, I want to hear it. <laughs> yeah, I watched the Chelsea game. Uh, I rewatched it after we played Chelsea. And I couldn't watch the 30 minutes, the first 30 minutes, because we were so blindingly fucking good. If you if you think rewatching the United game we're good in the first half, go back and watch Chelsea now, knowing that it's for real, that we can actually support that. We, it's like looking into the sun, how good we are. It's fucking blinding. It'll tear the retinas out of your head. We are astounding in that play there. Now, I know Chelsea give us a little bit there by, by not having that extra midfielder, but that doesn't matter. You, you, you play different. It gave them other things, and we took that all away from them. Uh, Arteta takes them apart, and our play, the, the, the one-twos, everything, everything we see in the United game is there in the Chelsea game. Mm. We just couldn't sustain it. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, look, to be fair, Jorginho Kante Kovacic is a different proposition from Fred 
the the bones of Nemanja Matic and Jesse Lingard. Um, yep. But, you know, look, you, you play the opponent that's in front of you. We've been worse against worse opposition, that's for sure. Uh, I did tell you we are going ad-free. I did not tell you that we are going to an all-Paul podcast. So <laughs> that's your trade-off there, guys. That's, that's how that's it's going to work. Look, look at worth, the time Tim got. I'm, I look, I've got it all written down. I keep score. I've got a fantasy league where I, I pick how many minutes each of you is going to talk for. Um, Tim, one of the one of the things that... that uh, I, I think is just really challenging our earlier opinions from the season is I think everybody got really frustrated with Emery. And then as frustrated as we got with Emery, I think we started to shift into maybe the players aren't as good as we rated them. You know, mm. oh, the, you know, the <clears throat> players aren't good. And when you don't have good players, you can only go so far. And a lot of players, I think, had dipped so far in our estimation. Torreira's Arsenal career looked over. Ozil is is dead. His career's done. David Luiz was the worst transfer in the history of, of football. Pepe was a waste because he doesn't train right. And you can go all through the squad and there would be players. Maitland-Niles basically begged off being a fullback. I mean, you could name them. Maitland-Niles, Torreira, Ozil, David Luiz. For me, those four players are four whose Arsenal careers looked either over or over before they had begun. Before Every single in. player on that pitch, apart from Aubameyang and Leno, we had written down. Yeah, and and then and then I mean I think Shaka, who's potentially in the departure lounge, has had two of his best games as an Arsenal player. So for you, is there one of those players that stands out in terms of the improvement that you've seen and against United specifically? Uh, which one or two of those players had a performance that really caught your eye? Um, I think Xhaka, um, and I, I'll I'll pick Xhaka and Ozil, um, and the reason I'll pick them is that I think you picked on something important, and and this was something I think I was saying quite a bit <laughs> during the bad run is you know when when players lose form we relitigate their quality <clears throat> quite a lot, and I think quite unfairly, and it and, and I'm not saying that this Arsenal squad is like league champions in waiting or anything or or anything near it. You take that back. But- <laughs> <laughs> but there was lots of well perhaps we're just mid-table and it's like bollocks are we mid-table we've got a Bamiang up front that is not mid-table and 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 it's like we did finish fifth and get to the Europa League final last year and and even then like that was with a collapse at the end like this is a team that should absolutely be challenging for top four and I think finishing in the top four um I, I just think people relitigate quality too easily but um having said that the reason i'll I'll pick shaka and urzel is because those are two guys i'd written off um you know i i never wrote urzel's quality off i I never saw this coming again quite frankly i don't think he'd been playing badly since he was reintroduced into the team and i had a fair amount of sympathy with him because i think um there wasn't a plan I think he was just thrown back into the team out of desperation and basically told, get on with it. You're quite good when you get the ball, try and do something with it. Um, which is, by the way, what I think basically has been happening with Aubameyang and Lacazette as well. But um, So, you know, I, I, I think Ozil has been okay this season. I don't, I don't necessarily hold him responsible for not, um, not pulling up trees to this point. But um, I definitely didn't see this type of performance in him. Um, I wasn't even sure he'd do it for Arteta. I did wonder, um, you know, the fact that they used to be teammates. Sometimes that's quite a funny, that's quite a funny dynamic for players to go. Hmm, you, you were my teammate a couple of years ago. I was playing in midfield next to you, and now I've got to take instructions from you. Um, and and that can really go either way because maybe you think that, or maybe you think 
I played next to you and you were quite smart and I quite liked you. So, um, you know, it's it's like um, at Chelsea at the moment, Lampard is really talking up Willian. Um, and they used to be teammates, but Lampard loves Willian because he does what he's told. Um, so, yeah. I, can can you know, I make I a quick point about that, though, Tim? Yeah, I think what it, it shows is the astuteness of, ma- of a manager because... Emery seemed to treat every player exactly the same, totally fungible, totally interchangeable. And and maybe it's just the fact that Arteta realizes, hey, Ozil's more a peer than he is employee, so I'm going to have to be a little different with him than maybe I can yeah. be with the younger players. You can't treat them all the same, and, and I, I just don't think Emery ever understood that. No, 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 you're quite right. And, uh, and you know, like, was this something like the I know the distance run statistics are verging on useless but I think I read that this is the the most that Ozil's run for for two years and actually he was second in the team behind only Terraria yeah 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 and actually Ozil's running stats are usually quite good um which which kind of tells you (laughs) in a way that that running stats aren't that useful because it's what you do with that running and how intense that running is and how useful it is but you know, everyone was singing his name. Like, look, look back at the um, the second goal again, and the whole stadium singing his name. And that's because they can see a change in him. They can see that 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 the intensity is there. And probably the player we worried about the most in terms of well, we we're guessing that Arteta is going to want Arsenal to press high and be intense. And can this, you know, could could Urzel ever handle that? Can thirty-one-year-old Urzel handle that? Um, and he's been one of one of the best at it, like genuinely, not not just kind of, oh, wow, my expectations were low and he's all right. Like he's been really, really good at it. Um, and, and, and you know, Xhaka as well, uh, you know, he, I think he deserves a lot of credit um, for his displays. And I saw something different in him at the end when he went round. He went round on his own, actually, to applaud the supporters and he hasn't done that the last couple of weeks. The last couple of weeks, he's been professional and he's played well, um, but he hasn't smart. He hasn't been smiling. It's been very much. I'm here to do a job, and you know, I'm clocking in and punching out. He he looked different last night. Just just at the end when he came round and he was really enthusiastically applauding the fans. And I really liked. I retweeted it today. There's a really nice clip from Arteta's press conference today where he talks about the conversation he had with him and just saying like, "Look, if you do this, you'll get the fans back." Um, <clears throat> and and I don't think he ever really massively lost the fans. It hasn't like. Um, he hasn't been booed or anything since he came back. I think it's kind of it's it's all passed a little bit. But um, yeah, he's he's been absolutely terrific. And and again, how how quickly things change when you know I I said myself on this podcast very recently. You know, it's it's just done for him, and it's probably in everyone's interest that he goes. And then today, Arteta says he's he's definitely going to stay at least until the end of the season. And my initial kind of completely unvarnished reaction was, oh, good. And then I thought to myself, shit, I, did, I didn't see myself saying that <laughs> even like 10 days ago. Mm. I didn't think I like, you know, I caught myself off guard with my own reaction. Um, and, and it's, you know, look, we've, I think we've always thought he's a good footballer. He's demonstratively a good footballer, whether he fits at Arsenal or in the Premier League is, is kind of another thing. And, and look, maybe in the summer we'll get someone better or someone more suited, but he doesn't, he doesn't look out of place at all, far from it. And, um, yeah, I, I think that role that Arteta's kind of created for him, 
Um, really, really suits him. Again, we're just giving him less space to cover. We're not asking him to do like middle distance running. We're giving them all uh, less space. And look yeah, at the difference. Yeah. Torreira too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're not we're not like giving him a running vest and some spikes and saying, there you go. Um, you know, you've got to do a half marathon to recover the ball for us. It's, you know, quick little sprints. Here's, here's your little bit of turf. Here's your corner. And you fight for that corner. You fight for that 30 yards around you. And uh, yeah, I, I thought he was absolutely terrific. And, um, you know, if he keeps playing like that, I, I hope he stays for you know longer than the summer and uh I, and he's I, a key component in switching our play when we draw yeah. them to one side i mean who yeah. else does it like that yeah mm. absolutely and and you know when he passes the ball you know he he puts some sauce on it right like he's he's the kind of guy that passes with a message on the ball when he passes it it's kind of he whipped smash. one to uh lacazette like fired it at him and Lacazette yeah. killed it with his first touch to be fair. And then didn't quite get it right with the second touch. But like, was it, was it bird camp who, who used to say like, yeah. I want to hit it to me as hard as you can. It's my job to, to control yeah. it. And if, if I can't touch, if then I'll work on my touch. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah. And, and, and maybe he, he really suits like Arteta ball and, and, you know, we'll find that out a bit more in the, in the kind of coming weeks and months. But yeah, I think he, I thought he was great at Bournemouth Um I, I think we probably missed him against Chelsea because we got to a stage where we just couldn't keep the ball in midfield. And uh, yeah, I'd, I'd be absolutely delighted to um, wolf down some humble pie on on Granite Xhaka if he keeps playing like that. Well, what I like yeah, well, Sha- but Xhaka wasn't. You know, we're not giving him the. We didn't give him the hundred pass responsibility in this game. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Maitland Niles was actually our leading passer. Socrates, Xhaka, Louise. Ozil, Torreira, all roughly within the same number of passes played. And that, that I think, speaks to the, the spacing also, just the fact that there are more players available. It's not one guy in 50 yards of space trying to do it all. Uh, Clive, I think one of the things that I've come around to, I have been a big believer that we have to play one up front and it has to be Aubameyang, as you know, and that Lacazette just has to sit down and maybe he's just not in form or, or whatever. Over these yep. three games, there's been a lot of debate about Lacazette. He's so out of form. His finishing is terrible. We got to get him out of the side. But in this game, I think I opened my eyes and finally saw, wow, he's just so important to what Arteta's doing. This was a masterful game from Lacazette without being good in the area of the pitch where we need him to be good. That will come, or you hope it will. But his energy and pressing, you know, you say, how are we going to play a pressing style with Mesut Ozil in there, with Granit Xhaka in there, with Pepe, who's maybe not as alive to it? Well, part of it is you have an Aubameyang who runs as hard as anybody runs for his team, which is great. And part of it is that you have a strong, combative center forward who's willing to do the work off the ball. I thought this was a great game from Lacazette. It's still not happening for him in the final third. But are, are we seeing now that he has to be played there because for Arteta's system off the ball to work, you need a player of his of his character um, maybe I, I think from the Chelsea game to the United game I think the biggest jump was Lacazette I think he made a huge stride and that tells me something again that the players are starting to smell something that's there's something good and they don't want to be left off they don't want to be left behind right? they all want to jump on the bus they all want to get involved and you know his determination to absolutely empty the tank was huge. And also I felt Arteta worked out, much as Tim alluded to in the last podcast that led, that fed into his Mustafi rant, that Lacazette needed to come off. And this time, when he put his hand up, he was off. 
does now keep him on the pitch. But we had three it, subs. Cost- I, I'm just going to interrupt just to make the point. I, I think we've got, you know, maybe he got it wrong against Chelsea, but look at the difference it made when he could take off a tiring Pepe, when he could take off a tiring Lacazette, right? When he had the choices of three subs instead of the injury yeah, and four that. substitution. I know yep. that. Yep. Yeah, I'm aware of that, mate. I'm aware that we lost Chambers and we had to have one in four subs. So, ACL injury for him, a, by the way, so... Um, uh, it looked like it from the moment it happened, I'm afraid, and um, just the way he went, and he did well to walk off the pitch, in my opinion. But um, so yeah, um, it's, it's it's I just felt there's a big jump forward for him, and I and I felt it 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 just gave us a little bit more energy. It just gave us a little bit more pivot play. I don't think he was polished, but you couldn't question his intention. His intention to do the right thing when he turned Maguire in the box. I mean, a year ago, that goes in top corner. He's thrashing at things a little bit. He, that right foot curler he had second half, normally, I think I've seen him do that against Bournemouth or Swansea, I can't remember which one, at the Emirates, and that's top corner for him. That's, a, that's just a pass back. That's a pass into the top corner. He's thrashing at these things, so the end product isn't there. But no one cares about that at the moment because everyone can see what he's trying to do. You know, He made one massive 40, 50-yard sprint across after he'd... Tried to foul somebody, didn't quite get the counter foul him that he should have got early on in the in the in the defensive action, and basically he ran 40, 40 yards away to make a to make a tackle and three men surrounded the man on the ball and they gave us the ball because they were just couldn't believe how we out intense them and and started to bully them around. I think it's it's Lacazette just joined on what's really really happening here, and what's really really happening is that we have a really clear attacking plan that the players understand and know what they're doing. And from that attacking plan, where people go into the pitch, where with, with where Shaka goes, where Maitland-Nal goes, where Kalashnik goes, or Saka goes, depending on who's playing, because everyone knows where they're standing. The defensive plan is really easy to, to trigger. So you actually get your defensive strategy from your attacking distances and your attacking plan. And I hadn't thought of that before. I hadn't thought we talk about offensive distances, but really your your defensive strategy and idea comes from where you're standing in your attacking plan. And that ferociousness in the first five to ten seconds that we're starting to see for periods and then dropping when we need to. I think that's a that's a point to note that the attacking philosophy that Arteca has put in place has actually been a trigger for the defensive strategy because you're now saying to people where they should stand, and that includes the back line coming up. And that means Arsenal, which we read, I think we read Kevin De Bruyne's statement in the Man City game that he felt nobody in the front, Arsenal's front section would come back and press, apart from Martinelli. Was that right in that statement he wrote? Here we are three weeks later, and what are we talking about? Aubameyang, Pepe, Ozil, Lacazette, all pressing massively. And from there, we're creating bad service going forward. Our defenders can stay high, which means we can compress the space and then we get in our midfield is looking better. And I just think it's just a genius of, of coaching, really. I think it's just tremendous. But more importantly, forget what we all think. The players seem to be massively on board, and that's why we're seeing what we're seeing. And I think, you know, everything is about spacing on a football pitch. I think the way Maitland-Niles is being used... You know, with Pepe occupying that that wide that right wing, and the fullback having to be occupied with him, and watching Luke Shaw try to handle him was pretty humorous. Um, and then Maitland now is pushing up and tucking in. 
the center back doesn't really know whether to be there. And so what, what happens? A midfielder drops in and you wind up with Fred trying to pick up Maitland-Niles or, or Matic. And who benefits? It's Mesut Ozil. Because he's got tons of space and tons of room to drop into. And no one really knows where they're supposed to be. It's a little, it's a little tactical switch of positioning that totally throws off the defensive alignment. And I, I love it. It's genius. A few little notes from this game, by the way. I thought the refereeing was horrendous. Like, genuinely horrendous. And I don't know what an Arsenal player has to have done to them for an opposition player to get a yellow card. But got, why do you think that is, Elliot? Why do you think... That, I know we're all biased here, but why do you think that's actually happening, that the referees seem to be really letting people kick us without booking? I, I, honestly, Clive, you'd have to tell me. I have no idea. It, because they're bad at their job? That that <laughs> My argument would be they're bad at their job. What would be yours? I, I think we... We've, we're struggling to be have that big club aura that they get all the breaks that the big clubs normally get. Mm. And because we're the smallest big club at the moment, I think we're being treated like a mid-table club. And I think we're getting kicked around. And I think it's, it's been happening for weeks Well, these now. last two games it's happened. I mean, look, they should have had four yellow cards. I mean, it was insane, some of the stuff. I mean, players getting dragged down from behind and no yellow. And, and we saw it against Chelsea. Jorginho should have been off. I think the problem is you keep your yellow cards in your pocket. You know what comes. Every Arsenal fan knows what's coming, and it's a broken. It's a broken leg. I mean, I mean uh, uh, can I, can I say something on the refs? I don't think they know what's going to hit them because Arteta's uh, cruise missile guided messaging. Uh, in in a few games, he didn't want to start by making excuses with referees. But he will make those comments that starts put, putting pressure on the refereeing against Arsenal. As Clive alludes to, we're a possession team, but we don't have the reputation, the, the big name reputation right now to go with that. And that's the worst place to be. You got the ball, but you get fouled and nobody complains. It doesn't seem unjust because you weren't supposed to win anyway. Mm, yeah, well, whatever it is. I mean, you guys may be right. That doesn't make it okay. That's not how it's supposed to work. So the referees need to fix the fuck up real quick. The other thing I will say is just like, this wasn't Arsenal dominating play but not creating anything. We had fantastic chances in the first half. Lacazette uh, took Maguire out behind the woodshed and beat the shit out of him in the box and then turns him, gets it onto his weaker foot admittedly and swipes that one wide from point-blank range. Aubameyang has the half volley. I guess it's a full volley, but with his quality, he's six yards out. You think he could finish that? Torreira just misses on arguably the best individual piece of brilliance in the game. Technically, he turns, swivels, and, and goes wide of the post. Pepe hits the post. Um, you know, when, when De Gea had that, I guess it was a, a pass out to him. Maybe he should have taken it first time. There were a lot of opportunities there, and we didn't convert. And I, I, I think 2-0 flattered them, honestly. I I think it was a completely dominant performance. And I know that there are going to be people who are going to say, well, that's a bad United team. Well, Watford's bad. <laughs> okay? Norwich are bad. The Ast- you can go on and on and on down the list of, of teams that are bad that we have not only not beaten, but drawn or lost. And that Obviously, if you haven't beaten them, you've drawn or lost to them. So that's clever. But And you- can I add on United? They've won five uh, of their last... Uh, five games against the big six. They've won three, drawn two. Uh, yeah, they didn't have McTominay, but so bloody what? Um, and, you know, th- this was a perfect game, perfect setup for them against a possession team uh, where we were at home. They were licking their chops to hit us on the counter, and we completely throttled them. Yeah, and I mean, look, 
they had 10 shots. They had 10 shots, and they only got to that point late. And the only real chance was the Maguire header off the free kick, and it was one of the reasons I got annoyed with Kolasinac. Because you know what's funny? I felt that we've had a lot of dumb football players. One of the things we've talked about on this pod a lot is, God, we just I want us to start playing smart football, not dumb football. And we've started playing smart football. There are some areas where we didn't. We lost the Chelsea game because Mustafi played dumb football. Um, we almost got pegged back a goal in this game because Kolasinac committed a really silly foul out on the wing on the stroke of halftime that he didn't need to commit after earlier having gone through the back of a player. Now, he got a yellow card where other players didn't. It was total bullshit, but that's beside the point. Fact of the matter is, it was a dominant display. And, Paul, I think, you know, the the way we controlled the game was obviously wonderful to see. I, I don't totally... Th- I don't think I have the footballing intelligence to explain what has happened with Maitland-Niles. But I think Arteta has looked at him and says, okay, you're sort of a midfielder and you're sort of a fullback, so I'll just play you as both. And it's working brilliantly. Do you want to maybe just dive a little bit deeper into the resurrection? And I say resurrection. He's young enough that his whole career is in front of him. But he went from basically saying, I don't want to be a fullback under Emery and losing his place to being a candidate for man of the match in every game he's played under Arteta. Now, there could be false dawns. Was it the very first game of the season against Newcastle where we didn't in the spotlight on Maitland-Niles because he was so good? Um, yep. But but he certainly he seems to... He had that be- interception near the halfway line and took it up the pitch and put in the cross for the goal. That's why we were all raving about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you want to maybe just wax yeah. poetic uh, about, uh, about the way he's playing under Arteta? Yeah, I don't have the football intelligence either. But it, here's what I'm saying, seeing in his game. Like, it was it was remarkable in the Bournemouth game how he was used as a central mi- midfielder uh, frequently. It was, le- it was kind of dialed back significantly um, in the Chelsea game. But he wandered in there a couple of times. It was just to no great import in the end. The, those weren't the... That's not where he got his touches. I think... In the United game, he's even further back into being a more conventional fullback. But the important thing in all that is that the same uh, aspect of it is important. He's staying close to the midfielder and to the centre back uh, around him. Uh, He's been given quite a limited role. How many times did he get up to the byline? How many times did he push right up? He didn't. He's always basically built into a triangle with... Uh, the centre-back, the midfielder, and the winger, who in this game was Pepe, and Ozil, who's dropping into that pocket of space. And he's, you know, he's a really good, very two-footed player who, when his foot... The good thing about that is it keeps him busy so that he's involved in the play so he doesn't have those lapses. And he's within a structure and he's supported. When he screws up, there's somebody close to him. And I think it's really helped him a lot. Um, it's interesting because early on he gives that ball away in quite a dangerous situation and then all the others around him are quickly kind of giving him a, not quite a high five but a, a slap a slap of encouragement saying no problem piece of cake we're back at it and I think Arteta's really done a job at working out what to do on his side and then conversely on the other side saying to Kolasinac look we got Maitland-Niles back there that's given us a line across the back when we need it you can push forward and you see it in the touch maps where Maitland-Niles is far more conservative in the sense of positional but he's there in all the build-up play and if you look at where we built our play despite the fact that Chaka was on the left where you'd expect 
uh, the progressions, despite the fact that Kolasinac is way up the wing and you'd be thinking that's where we're building our play. Actually, probably two-thirds of our play is up the right-hand side of things. So even from a more conservative position, he's playing that kind of hybrid, full-back, wide midfielder, uh, forming triangles, building the play, making Pepe look great, making Oza look great, um, linking with Terreros, making quick passes, maybe not always visionary line breakers, but a quick short line breaker to Ozil in a pocket of space is worth a long visionary pass every day of the week. And so Terreros' superpower is that quick progressive pass. And he's, uh, Maitland-Niles is a key part of that, creating the triangles. And I think that's why he's shining. He Back to... Although the first game, the Newcastle game, where he's shown with that interception, it's not necessarily the game that suits him. Clive often talks about us being a, a, a small spaces rather than a large spaces team. And uh, Arteta kind of created that on Maitland-Niles' side, where it's all ti- triangles with appropriate distances. And we stretch to play on the far side with, uh, our, with Chaka's spinning balls and Kolasinac running to the byline and doing other stuff. And, and, you know, I do think you're a little harsh on Kolasinac still, and you might be proven to be right, but I don't think Kyle Walker's that much smarter than Kolasinac. Uh, I just thought that yeah. play was stupid. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. it was a bad foul yeah. that, that led to their biggest chance of the game on the yeah, stroke yeah. of halftime with the 2-0 He's, got, he's mm-hmm. got stupid in him, but <laughs> Arteta can define a role for him that I think can be some version of Maybe not quite what Kyle Walker is asked to do at City, but you know they have a lot in common: power, speed. I mean, Daniel James, or Daniel James is a fast, fast player, and Kolasinac, although he started behind him, stayed with him. I, I know the play you're talking about when he shoves him in the back, but he runs for a guy who's injured on a bad ankle. He still runs 40 yards neck and neck with the guy. He just can't quite pin him back. So, you know, he has a lot of what Kyle Walker has. Um, and there was a time when we started to laugh at his cutbacks, but before that, there was a time when he was a very, very useful player to us with his cutbacks, and it was the players running into the box. So I think there's a really interesting contrast with how Arteta has... He's not looking for symmetry on the pitch. He's using the asymmetry to play to the strengths and weaknesses of our two fullbacks in this game. Yeah, well, I mean, whatever it is, it's, it's working, and it certainly... I mean, you could say, does Bellerin get back in the side? I don't know if I see it that way because I actually think Bellerin is a better passer than Maitland-Niles, and I think the role could suit him really well, especially if this is a Hector Bellerin who maybe isn't fitness-wise ready for the long sprints up and down the the wing. Then maybe it sets up perfectly for him, and we'll we'll have to see what what Arteta decides with that. Tim, I think one of the things that is striking, obviously, in this game, and I think just in general since Arteta has come in, is a team that looked like it couldn't defend and would never be able to defend, with the exception of the last 10 minutes against Chelsea, maybe getting stretched too much, chasing the game a bit and dead on our feet, has looked like it can defend. And Mm. a big part of that is, I think, the spacing. I think it's the fact that we've controlled the ball a bit better. We've suppressed shots by, by keeping the defenders away from their goal. I mean, the one thing I've been banging on about since Emery got here was you don't defend by sitting deep. 
and protecting your goal. You defend by getting the hell away from your goal and keeping the ball far from your goal. And the players who looked useless, David Luiz chief among them, now look comfortable. I am so impressed with how Luiz did. Maybe you can talk to me a little bit about how you felt about Luiz's performance, but also, is there an indictment here of Luiz at all? I mean, he had a reputation for being able to get a manager sacked at Chelsea. Do do you think that some of this is that he's just trying again and wasn't before? Or do you think it is genuinely he's in better better spaces, better positions, and and the results are flowing from that? It's <clears throat> I'd say it's largely the latter, but um, I, I probably wouldn't phrase it quite like that, but a little bit the former as well, because Louise is um, David Louise is never like in the middle, right? <laughs> he's never like he's never just like content he's either really happy or he's really fucking unhappy um and i think you saw from his post-match interview uh last night how how he felt under emery um and and it's not i don't think it's so much a kind of a rebellious streak or you know trying to get managers sacked or anything like that I, he's just you know he's either one thing or the other and and that's the thing about him as a defender, and he's another one. Um, maybe I kept quieter than I should have, but like um, I, I've always thought that he has a slightly unfair reputation in this country um, as being a bit of a joke. He's not. He's he's a really good defender. Um, the only thing, well, I say the only thing. The thing that stops him perhaps being considered an absolute heavyweight throughout his career is because yeah he has these times where he gets unhappy and he's out of favor either because he's doing silly things or because he falls out with managers because he's not he's just not one of those people who can go yeah i don't really like this but you know what i'm just going to play and do my job he's he's like he's all or nothing but um you know just click on his wikipedia page and look what he's won in his career um you know he's He's won. He's won pretty much every trophy going, um, except for the World Cup. And you know he he nearly won that. Um, I also I, th- I think a l- and, and there's a reason for that, right? It, it's because he's quite good. Um, but he's commanding and, dangerous situations now in ways that he wasn't before. Yeah. Like he's cleaning up the dan- the danger, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and he's always had that in him. I I do think it's a mixture of the you know the way Emery was asking us to defend, to basically back off, to sit in. That's not him. That's really not him. And um, you know, I I think you saw it like in the opening weeks of the season, he was much more aggressive, and then he kind of went into a bit of a shell that that isn't him that doesn't come naturally to him um also like a lot of people say oh he can only play in a back three not true um he played alongside Thiago Silva for years and let me tell you before just before or actually around about the time of the 2014 World Cup that was the best centre-half partnership in the world um in my view I, I saw them a lot um, but unfortunately, Thiago Silva got suspended for the World Cup semi-final um, in 2014, and we all saw what happened. Um, and and that's that's kind of David Luiz in a bit of a nutshell, I guess. But the, the, if if he's used right and he thinks he's being used right, he he is a really good defender. He really is. It really can go either way. But he's not shit. He can do silly things, but he is absolutely not shit. And we saw that last night. I think we saw that in the Chelsea game as well. He was he was super pumped for that Chelsea game. And 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 actually 
at first I was a little bit worried. I was thinking, oh God, he's going to, you know, he's going to do something stupid. But actually, I, I don't think he did in the end. I thought it was like it was quite controlled. But, you know, he um, I, I, I listened to a lot of his interviews uh, when he played under Sari at Chelsea and he loved Sari. And every interview he was like, I really like training with this guy. I really like how this guy sees football. I really like his philosophy. I really hope he stays. And he was a huge, huge kind of... Um, you know, he was he was a huge defender of Sari in the press. He he loved him, um, and 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 he played brilliantly under him as well. Because when he feels like the team is built in a way that kind of helps him and his strengths, um, you know, he really feels happy. And the way Arteta's using him, not just as a defender, but you know, he's got him just like to the right of Granite Xhaka. So you've got Xhaka just in that left half space and you've got him in the centre. So, you know, he's he's got that kind of option to shift the ball over to Xhaka or or to hit the crossfield passes that he likes to hit. And and it's just yeah. I, I think he's he's a player you'll see a different side of till the end of the season. I I don't think you'll be seeing him on the bench um mm. a lot. And and he'll be appreciated a lot more, I think. And to be fair I don't think there's any choice because we have two defenders left. <laughs> so yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, if I give you a hundred quotes, Tim, and I said ninety-nine of them are true, and one of them is fake, would you pick "The Fun Is Back" from Socrates Paspadopoulos <laughs> as the fake quote? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that renowned funster, uh, Socrates. Um, yeah, I mean that that says it all, doesn't it? And, and that's a very interesting word to use. And like like I said earlier, right? players want to work hard and like they're working their absolute nuts off and they're like dropping like flies like in the last five to ten minutes of games and the final whistle goes and they'll collapse on the turf i mean that's not most people's definition of fun (laughs) but for elite level athletes it is it is that they are having fun even though they're like you know they probably never worked this hard some of them but they're enjoying it and that, and it's kind of it becomes a a virtuous circle then you you work harder you enjoy it more and when you enjoy it more you work even harder as a result and uh, yeah i th- i thought that was a really interesting word to use because uh, maybe some of us were quite maybe concerned isn't the word but you know we were probably all thinking yeah arteta's talking about upping the intensity uh these these absolute charlatans won't enjoy that and they're all going to get horse whipped out the door but like they love it they love it like which player top, doesn't top look level, like yeah top level athletes are addicted to peak yeah. experiences yeah which you get at the end of a united get exactly that's yeah. that's what they live for yeah, yeah, like they they don't go out on the piss like us. Like they don't drink. They they can't like they can't do anything basically because they're athletes and every minute they're not training, they're meant to be resting. This is where they get their their buzz from, their purpose from, and and that's why they're at this level. And 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 yeah, I think that's a really interesting contrast. That's a really interesting word for him to use at a time when you know Arteta used the word suffering, and it kind of is suffering, but. You know, it's fun suffering. Mm, yeah, I mean, and and it was fun watching them suffer, that's for sure. And by the way, I think the one thing about the Arteta quote where he says, I like to see them suffer or whatever, it leaves out the the, the words following the, the most important word after that, together. 
I like to see them suffering together for one another. Like, that's why it's a good quote. He doesn't just want to see them suffering. He wants to see them suffering for one another, together, as a team. And I, it may seem like you're nitpicking, but that is a big difference to see a unit working together. And that is the thing. I mean, there was a lot, and maybe this is why Ganduzi's performance was a little disappointing against Chelsea. There's a lot of individuals who played like individuals under Emery, but this feels more like a unit on the pitch when they're playing together. Clive, I think obviously late in the game, this is where you feel for Arteta. He's got a team of absolutely exhausted players giving everything three games in a row, absolutely nothing left in the tank, having to just sort of ride it out at the end there. Um, I, I think he got the substitution spot on to the extent that he really had any choices because... You know, let's face it, there's there's not a lot to choose from. I thought it was interesting with Kolasinac on a yellow, he does bring in Saka for Kolasinac. And I, I thought this was an interesting moment for Saka because instead of being able to play sort of like a, a wide forward with Shaka tucking into that left space like he did against um against Bournemouth and he was playing more like forward, he was brought on really to defend here. And I, I thought maybe he looked a little nervous knowing how important this game was. Um you know, Pepe came off for Nelson for his running power, and then Ganduzi late to just shore up possession for Lacazette, who had given everything. How do you feel about the substitutes and just what Arteta is trying to do now to eke out results with a completely shattered group of players? Yeah, in this game, he used youth to finish the game and add, and tried to add some legs. I felt, I actually tweeted out, actually, I felt that Saka and Nelson, they looked very stiff. They looked almost like they still had the other game in their legs. I then read afterwards that Saka was not very well, and so that's why Klasnik played. And he did a great job for 60-plus minutes to stay out there and and allow the kid time to come on when he came on. He came on to a situation where we were in our in our half a lot more, and he had to defend that side. And he got he got roasted a couple of times early on. He just he just looked very stiff, like he almost wasn't ready to come on. And then mm. he warmed up, and then he pushed the game back. You know, and this this boy's got a lot of talent, and you know, there was he has played left back for England under 17s and 16s, and it was always a toss up where he played for the England teams coming through, and I noted that, and I, I so this isn't a massive surprise to me to see him playing left back for Arsenal, but I would have suspected to be wing back, you know, because of his um because of his size, but he's very powerful. And he's very powerful in the tackle. And he bounces out of his hole really well, really quickly. He does the old short spin and then spinning behind. So he shows short and spins and gets the ball over the top. And I know he had a couple of bad crosses in the um, in the Chelsea game, but actually his service is really quite good. Mm. And so there is a there is a player in there. And I, I do I'm loving the development of him and Maitland Niles, you know, how how they're allowed to be and how and I said it before, how safe they feel. There was a moment in this game, I think about the 87th minute, it's a free kick, made the nails on the right touchline. And he just swept the ball, the length of the pitch, across the pitch, out to Aubameyang. One touch, bang. I'm thinking, you would never do that before, because you'd be too scared to do that before. And so this is the inspiration of the manager, who has said many things we've heard from other managers but the players have to believe in what he's saying. And this is what we're seeing. We're seeing elite athletes being given elite information in an elite way that's making them buy in. And then the structures we've been putting on the pitch, 
which allows these people to feel better. And I'm just watching these younger players. Who, the younger ones I'm, I go over the top on every time. So, yeah, they either make it or they don't. But obviously, Maitland-Niles and Saka, I, I like a lot. I like their punchiness. I like their speed. But they're nothing without the ability to feel they can do something and then they can go and find the next level. If you play with fear, you're only going to be a stopgap. You're only going to be a a young John O'Shea, for example, plug plug and play into these roles. But we want these players to be more than that. And they could save us millions, you know. And we've got a couple of primary fullbacks and I'm looking you know, obviously Tierney will come back next season in you know, hopefully in much better shape. Um, Bellerin, there's concerns in the club about his fitness and how he's recovering. And that is a worry. That's a genuine worry. But I worry a lot less with Maitland-Niles there. And that's going to be an interesting one to follow. So, yeah, I'm loving how we're using energy in this game to finish the game. They didn't quite have the energy to last the previous game. And we all know about what happened there. But we're starting to see... And younger, uh, from a younger team perspective at Arsenal, I think we're doing really well. But what we saw in this game, obviously, on top of the youngsters, was some of the high paid players, the highly purchased players, say, I'm going to show the way, I'm going to lead the way. People like Louise, Pepe, Lacazette, Ozil, Abamyang always does it. Those players said, Right, right, you lot, you follow us, and then we'll make it nice for you. You follow us, we'll lead the example. And it was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Yeah, yeah, well said. I I loved this game, and I, I think I've loved all three games under Arteta, but this time we got the result that the performance deserved. And I think, to be fair, this probably was the best performance start to finish. Um, and, you know, again, I think it is really important to reiterate that this is not, you know, our third game after preseason and finally it's clicking. He gets dropped right into the thick of it with a squad bereft of some of its most important players through injury, absolutely knackered, physically not fit, no time to train, and clearly has already been able to communicate some basic ideas that make all the difference in the world. And, you know, I, I, I all right, well, Paul, I'll let you do this just really quickly. Um, you know, on the heels of having had a howler against Chelsea, really probably the only one of his Arsenal career that jumps to mind, Leno was strong again. I mean, I... I think he could be yeah. better in distribution if I had to pick yep. on him, but I, I certainly yeah, I think as a shot stopper and, and in terms of how he did in the air, this was a good performance from him. Yeah, he's strangely good with his feet and yet not great in terms of his distribution or choices. So I think that's a coaching thing. He's got the skills and he's got both feet. But yeah, after the Chelsea game, um, you know, he, he made a couple of nervy punches where maybe he could have grabbed the ball early on. But we've so many games where we don't even mention him and he's been sterling all the way along. And one particular moment, he, he was good throughout this game, I think in general. Uh, but there was one moment where there's a ball over the top, I think to Rashford, who's one-on-one -on -one with Leno. In fact, the ball's right in to that uh, car door of uncertainty. And Leno just comes out and saves, the, saves the shot with his internal organs, gets it right in the stomach. Totally brave, totally fearless, fair fucks to the guy. Uh, one more solid game under his under his uh, his belt, and you know we all know we don't give him the credit he deserves. So fair fucks to the guy. Yeah, and you, you know what, Paul? I think also you just put players in a position to succeed, and we talk a lot about how that impacts us up the pitch. 
But back towards Leno, you know, we played out from the back a lot under Emery to comedic effect. Um, we were playing out a decent amount in this game, but you know what I noticed? The spacing, right? So the center backs are split much wider. They were much narrower under Emery. And it's so much easier to press when you can cover two players with one man. And then the the fullbacks had to drop deeper and wider, so they were against the touchline. And then, you know, you'd have one midfielder, but he could be one defender could cut out the midfielder the way the center backs were playing. Look at this game. Leno and Socrates are spread really far apart, wider than the 18-yard box. The fullbacks are up, the central midfielders are back, and there's no way for the the pressing team, the defensing team, you know, in, in this case, um, United, to cut out those passing lanes with two forwards. We were so easy to press previously because you could cut out three players with one man. And it just seems like such an obvious tweak, but it's a tweak that I think has made it easier for us to play out from those deep positions and, and draw them on do to you us. Think it, yeah? Do you think it... I think it's also pace of passing. I think, um, again, bravery, punching it. If once you see punching passes through lines, people tend to give you a little bit more latitude. When they see the pace of pass being slower, they creep onto you and put you under even more pressure. So you have to be really assertive in how you move the ball. And we are punching that ball much quicker than we have done, much more accurately. And even when the passes are going astray, they're going astray at pace. And they're going past the man. I think that's a really important point. I think he obviously wants to be much more aggressive, much more punchy in how we're moving the ball. But it also makes it harder for the other team to control it. He can snap back in the, within the five seconds. So, so everything's hit punchy, and if it goes wrong, it's overhit. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Don't yeah. underhit it. It's overhit. And overhitting gives you a chance to turn around and face up and then defend. So I think it's an important point. No, I think it's a great point. Look, wh- whatever it is, it's 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 making a difference because a lot of our defensive issues this season came from never progressing the ball beyond the defense. And all the problems started there. Uh, so, you know, I, I think seeing us just be able to get the ball from back to front a little better, um, whether it's spacing, pace of pass, I agree that tempo matters. Not having everything run through Shaka. I mean, I, I love the performance Shaka has put in, but we do know that he turns a little slowly, that he can be pressed. Torreira received the ball off Socrates quite a few times and off Maitland-Niles, and he can turn a little bit, and he can wriggle out of pressure a little bit more. And, and so sharing the load, I, I think that helps as well. Tim, at full time, the reaction was like we'd won a cup final. Um mm. You know, Arteta came out on the pitch, and we talked about this, and just a hug for every player. But how much do you read into those reactions and the emotional reaction and what this meant for the club, for the players, for the manager, and the way they reacted to him in terms of just feeling like maybe a a team that was falling apart and players who were heading for the exits, that maybe the story of this group hasn't been written yet? Yeah, yeah. Uh, The fun is back, um, (laughs) as it were. I. I mean, I think the interesting thing is um, is that basically, like, we never transitioned out of transition in the kind of late Wenger, early Emery um, kind of project. Because, you know, as you said many times, we built a must-win-now squad. We spent lots of money on late prime players who really were only going to be, you know, who really only had two to three years in them kind of as a, as a unit and... You know, you include like uh, Mesut Ozil's contract in that, you know, players like Socrates, Louise, I suppose to a lesser extent, Licksteiner, Aubameyang, Mkhitaryan. You know, we put together this this kind of late 20s, early 30s team 
Um, and that always meant that it was going to need to be turned over quickly. And actually, that that point probably arrived. So I'm, you know, in terms of the story of this team not being written, uh, maybe not, but I'm not. Sh- I'm still not sure it's going to have a chance to be written. And actually, I think that invests Arteta with um, with more power because he's not walking into a situation where Ozil's just signed this contract and he's got like. Ramsey and Welbeck who've got one foot out of the door you know these contracts have rolled on a bit now and some of these players are a bit older like the Aubameyang situation and we've discussed this before we probably can't and shouldn't give him what what he you know what he can justifiably command when his contract comes up in the summer like we, we probably shouldn't be doing that and you know it might be a bit painful trying to replace him but um you know, we we will and life will move on because we'll have to do that. It was at some painful point trying anyway. to re- replace Thierry Henry and Robin Van Persie. I mean, <laughs> yeah, have to do yeah, it. yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And and it's kind of you know, it's a shame to have a player like Aubameyang like at this point. You know, probably at our lowest ebb in the last kind of twenty to thirty years. But um, it is what it is. But so. On one hand, yeah, maybe the story of this group isn't quite written yet. And I and I hope that, you know, things continue like this. And at the end of the season, we look at this team and think, oh, actually, these, these players, they're not they're not as bad as I thought they were. Um, but at the same time, I'm still expecting quite a bit of churn. And there's already quite a lot of talk about January um, and about activity that might go on in January. So. You know, um, I'm not sure this team will have much of a chance to write um, a drastically different story, but maybe they'll have the opportunity to just make us reassess a little bit. Mm, Yeah, I mean, I I, I think it was disgraceful that Emery was allowed to stay as long as he did, and it raises huge questions about Raul and Vinay and the whole group, and I guess you have to lump Edu in there to some extent, but, like, now we will really see what what they think because... I don't see how they can take Granite Shaka away from this team in January. You know, I, they certainly cannot sell Aubameyang or Lacazette in January, no matter what they want to do. Lucas Torreira made some noises about wanting to go back to Italy. My hope is with Emery gone, that's gone now. But I mean, I, I think he's arguably your man of the match in this game. You, you cannot get rid of Lucas Torreira right now. Will these guys have the strength to hold on to players who maybe have an eye on the exit? Will they cash in? Will they let them go because they're too cozy with their agents? I will be very curious to see how this shapes out. But you look at the comments, you know, the fun is back from Socrates. David Luiz talking about how great it felt to fight for one another and then stabbing all the knives in the back of Emery, which I, I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, I, I just, I, I think that there is a camaraderie in this group that can be tapped into and seems to be tapped into, and hopefully they get a chance to build on that. I mean, for you, Clive, you know, we have a little break now. I, I, I got to believe that em- Emery's failings from a rotation standpoint, will not be repeated by Arteta, who will certainly probably use nothing but kids against Leeds um, on Monday, is it? Or when? Yes, Monday. Yeah, Monday night. Um, yeah. But putting that to one side, how important is it right now, even more than buying in January? And you can certainly point to a few areas where we could use reinforcements. How important is it that nobody hits the exit door from an already fairly depleted squad in this window? Well, I, I can't say... You know, I, I don't want certain people to go, but more importantly, I want people to stay because they want to stay and because they feel it's worth staying. I felt for a long time that these players have made it look like a chore to pay for the club, and I, I sense that, and I didn't sense that yesterday. You know, looking at that pitch yesterday, did you sense anybody who wanted to leave? 
did they play um, like Man- players? Manchester United. <laughs> yeah. Did they play like players and wanted to leave, or did they play like players that were absolutely on board 100% and were finding out new things about themselves as a group and finding out about the even about the club because you know I wasn't there at this game and it's one of the games that I regret missing, but there's layers in the Emirates crowd that have never been seen before. And we see them very, very rare occasions if we do at all. But that looked a bit special in there on Sunday. It looked, sorry, on, on yesterday, it looked special. It looked like one of those games of the year that you won't forget, you know, and it's all about that that collective feeling. And um, so the players, they're not stupid. They don't want to run out and see loads of red seats in front of them. They think, what's the point of staying here? Why am I going to give my career to this club? They're not doing anything for me. They've got, you know, we, they've got they've got a manager I don't like. The, the board seems to be disconnected. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get hold of my career, get hold of my agent, and get me out of here. And that's what it looked like was happening up until recently. The last two, three weeks, we've seen a, a slight change in that. And that seems, let's see how that manifests in, into activity. There may be some strategic moves. From a transfer perspective, I think we definitely need a one cent and a half because I think one should leave. And so we need much more of an active body, a real player that can push. And whether we go left back, I'm not so sure. But I think we need to probably think about Kalashnik if he's, you know, there's rumours him going to Roma. So let's see if that manifests again. We're not too sure. Saka could be a lifesaver. So that those two could could keep us going until Tini comes back, so that could be a summer move. But I I do think potentially a an all court centre midfielder. I think somebody that works very hard, that is two way and has a lot more speed and stature. If there's an opportunity, they may do it, because I think we need to add that sort of power in the middle of the pitch just to keep developing on the model that we can all see. And I think that would be interesting. So, for me, it's, it's it's all looking great. It's all looking great. And we should enjoy this. We've had a very depressing time in the last few, few months. And it's great to hear all of you guys massively positive, as we all should be. And I think it's just wonderful. I have to admit, even at our bottom, when I was still the lone positive voice on this podcast, um, I, I wondered if I'd ever get you guys back. <laughs> and having you back now, uh, it feels great to finally have that have that dynamic back in place because it was it was hard carrying all that water for you guys for so long it was lonely it, it is super lonely when bummery i mean i mean emery was 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 doing the, the work um so look i, I mean paul I, I guess as we finish out here the, the question i think that has to be asked now is what is the ceiling on this season because yes we feel great about arteta top four still appears to be lava in that nobody wants to touch it um, Jose Mourinho is already running all of his season three plays in season one, blaming Ndombele for his injuries, blaming Harry Kane in the club for his injuries. Um, did you see him get a yellow card for trying to, I guess, spy on the opposition coaching staff? Do you guys see that? Yep. That was class, classic, uh, classic Jose Mourinho. And then you have Chelsea, you know, who, all right, fine. You know, they, they got the job done against us, but you know, refused to build on that, and uh, they went ahead and and drew Brighton away. So, so they didn't pick up yeah, points. Yeah. And so, you, you look at the standings, you look at the table, and you say, "Gosh, are we in touch with it?" You know, we're we're nine points off Chelsea from a probabilistic standpoint, especially with a minus two goal difference. 
we're probably at 2%, you know. Uh, but for you, is top four still within our ceiling, or is it really just about the Cups now? No, but if it's tantalizingly close, that might do us a lot of good. And we play Chelsea in uh, two, three weeks' time. I mean, the crazy thing is setting and, aside results between now and then. If we were to beat Chelsea at Chelsea, and I realize that's a huge if, yep. we're six points off of them. Um, yeah, and we've got the big mo at that point. We've yeah. kind of proved a point and we believed our, believe in ourselves. And the problem is there's a lot of teams between us even and Chelsea so you want to hear the crazy the, thing about Chelsea, just real quick, because I interrupt you yeah. again. Okay, I'm just gonna do this. I'm sorry. I'm just gonna do it because hope is a terrible thing. So they've got a couple of easy games between now and then. On the 21st, we we go to Chelsea. They then go to Leicester, host United, host Spurs. So they've got Arsenal, Leicester, United, Spurs, all four in a row. I mean, this is gonna get interesting again before they have to play Bayern Munich twice in the Champions League. And then who knows what happens. So, I mean, I promise you, hope is a terrible thing, but this is going to get interesting again. Yeah. And then, so the tantalizing uh, aspect of top four, if we can get close and get in the frame, it's just going to lift the whole momentum of the club. Uh, we now look at the Europa League in whole other eyes, where before we were scratching our heads whether we were favorites to get past Olympiacos or not. Uh, now you can see that if we get our shit together, we're absolutely should be favorites to win the Europa League. Now, that doesn't mean you're odds on to win it, but we should be as likely to win it as any other team. I was just looking at the betting and the betting still hasn't caught up. So you want, might want to jump on that, lads. Uh, we're back in the frame for that. Um, and getting into the Europa League places itself is a significant deal for next year, for the club, for morale, for the finances. Um, so I think there's a lot to play for. Um, the thing about Pep was he took all cups seriously. So uh, we're in the FA Cup. I think we'll have a serious run at it, and it can be a real mood lifter. I mean, he, he takes the the uh, the milk cup seriously, for God's sake. So, you know, it, it, momentum is a thing. And if we can take that into the summer... You know, we, we talked about players. I don't think Torreira is leaving this. How much fun is he having in the last two or three games? Um, you know, who was the one player Emery said wouldn't say goodbye to him? Torreira. It wasn't Arsenal he dislikes. It's not really London he it dislike, he dislikes. Um, it's playing under Emery who fucking hate it. He ain't leaving he's if not, we don't he's want to. He's not alone. No. <laughs> I didn't like watching it either. <laughs> yeah, Kolasinac is not leaving unless we want him to just because of the, the wages we're paying him. So we're going to hold on to everybody we want to hold on to apart from maybe Aubameyang. Um, and if we can give them the incentives that were on a significant upward, upward curve over the last uh, four or five months, and you got the Europa League as as the carrot at the end of that. And we were chasing down Chelsea and getting in the mix with these other guys. So we look like we're the real deal going into the summer. It'll be a huge difference to uh, bobbling around 13th, 12th, 11th, up to 7th, maybe. You know, that's a whole other narrative and a whole other season. So there's a huge amount to play for here. Uh, and Arteta, I mean... He is a ruthless bastard. So he, he's not going to let anybody off the hook. He's not going to have slackers. He's not going to start to settle for anything. Um, he's a serious, serious 
manager with ambition. So, yeah, uh, I think it's going to be a very interesting run-in. Last question, Tim. Um, on a scale of 1 to 10, where 5 is exactly what you expected, 1 is obviously well below and 10 is well above, the impact Arteta's made in these three games, not just obviously in terms of results, but performances, tactical changes, <laughs> morale, player performances. I mean, where again, where 5 is what you expected, where would you mm. rank the impact he's had in this in this sort of first three games? Uh, eight, getting on towards nine. Um, I, you know, I think obviously the, the kind of late capitulation against Chelsea and Bournemouth was was good. You know, but uh, but but like let's not say it was amazing, particularly because it was Bournemouth who were awful. Um, but yeah, I'd give it an eight. I I I. I like I was behind the appointment. I, I talked myself into it last time just out of curiosity. But this time I, th- I thought, yeah, this, this is the right time. Um, and because I wasn't hugely taken with any of the other candidates. But I thought, and I'm aware, I'm going to introduce the clause that Paul introduced earlier. You know, we talk game by game, right? And so sometimes it kind of sounds like you're saying something really sweeping, which like, a month later can make you sound really stupid and and I'm still like trying to keep my feet on the ground and expecting like little kind of ups and downs and frustrations uh, which indeed we just had against Chelsea didn't we um but I, I we yeah, call those I, Mustafis by the way yeah. yeah yeah um so yeah I'm I'm I I expected to see improvements just because I mean we were the bar was so low I expected to see like um you know the effort go up a little bit i expected it to be like quite slowly slowly and to some extent it is but i guess what's really surprised me is the speed with which the players and the fans have all just bought in i really thought that that this would be like a fairly divisive appointment i think there are a lot of people who completely understandably had reservations about this and I, I guess everyone had reservations, really, because everything we've heard about Arteta is pure theory. Um, he's, you know, he's never done this job. Um, but I really thought it might split the fan base a little bit between the people who really wanted to see this and the people who are like, no, don't, you know, don't appoint this guy. But and, and I think it might have been like that. But his messaging was just on point from the first second. And I think that that bought, you know, a that brought the fans in quite quickly and we can see the players have bought in and it's just snowballed nicely over these, these kind of three games and just hope that that kind of momentum continues that that's what surprised me. I expected to see some quick fixes. I expected to see a low bar raised, but it's, it's been raised a little bit higher than I thought it would be. And, and, and I think my real surprise is, is how much the fans kind of, pretty much universally have looked at this and said yeah this this is great let's keep doing this um uh, it, it, i th- i think arsenal fans have become like divisiveness has almost just felt normal like the normal way of things that we should argue about everything and that we should be in camps and stuff like that and and to see us break out of that quite quickly has has surprised me very pleasantly the irony is emery united us <laughs> <laughs> if you True. know what I mean, yeah. like at the end. Um, and, and I have to say, Tim, it is hard for me with my sort of cynical uh, approach to life or not cynical, but but sort of skeptical, eh, cynical, whatever. Not like I have to bite down hard not to just constantly think we could have had this guy 
two years ago um, and never had to go through the Emery thing. But maybe he needed those extra, you know, that extra year and a half under Pep and maybe the circumstance was too yeah. hard for anyone. And, and as Clive talks about, we needed a cleaner. And so, I mean, it, you know, certainly it should change should have been made in the summer and, and if not then, then in the international break. But at the end of the day, we've got him and that's what matters. And by the way, you know, a teachable moment. I, I hope Granite Shaka is looking at this and learning some lesson because and I take Paul's honor culture comments on board. But like, this is a guy who was getting booed off at home who went to war with the fans who put an Instagram post in the in the match day program, refused to apologize and wanted out, who's basically been voted man of the match or a high man of the match candidate in two games in a row now that he's played by the fans, who the fans have immediately taken back. As fans, all we need are crumbs. You give us crumbs and we will make a meal out of it. Like you don't, you know, yeah, we'll boo you. Two games later, you'll be the hero. You can earn it back so easily. And I just think it's it's a reminder that as a player, if you get your head down and work hard and and give the fans something to latch on to, fans want to love people that pull on their shirt. They do. Mm-hmm. We want to love people that pull on the Arsenal shirt. We wanted to uh, love Emery. I, did, yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I had to laugh when uh, the crowd started shouting to Chaka to shoot mm-hmm. during the game. I'm like, you have a feckin' nerve, you bastards. <laughs> but you know what? We are fickle. Of course we're fickle. But, like, it, it doesn't take much. We just needed crumbs, and Arteta's given us a meal, and, and God bless him for it. So I think we should leave it there. What we're going to do is we're going to um, put out some Patreon content the next few days. So a rewatch pod with, with Clive. We'll have the first of the transfer pods on the other side of the weekend, the first of the analytics pods from... Scott, so a really good time to sign up if you want to do that. If you want to get all the transfer reporting from David Ornstein and stuff this January, sign up for The Athletic. Think about it. Like, you'll get a month free. So take January free. And then if you want to cancel, I totally get it. But at least take January free, theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision. We are going to go advertising free other than those two reminders for the rest of 2020 as as a thank you to everyone for hanging with us through tough times, thick and thin. Uh, We're going to say goodbye, but we're going to leave you a little differently. We're not going to leave you with the usual outro music. But instead, we're going to bow our heads and celebrate a silent night, Clive style. So I hope you enjoy that. I hope you stay tuned through the whole podcast because you earned it. Clive's coming up, but we'll talk to you after Arsenal 10 leads nil. Silent night. Holy night, all is calm, all is bright, round yon virgin mother and child, holy infant so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly That'll do, yeah? Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. 
Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.